Do you want a cash-flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi-million dollar portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life. And the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson. Today, we have a great, a great story. This is one you're going to want to listen to. I am bringing a guest on that's going to share a story that most people will never understand. And that is what we have in the United States. We, as a country, you will not understand it unless you've never had it. The freedoms that we have of being in one of the greatest countries ever, the US. Our next guest is going to talk about her harrowing I will call it escape and actually her journey to becoming a U.S. citizen and how that has prepared her to launch multifamily investing syndication and self-storage. And really, the world is going to be her oyster. And so I'm very excited to talk about what's going on. Before we do that, listen, I'm pleading with you guys right now, if you are looking to get into the multifamily space and you're to a point where I need some training. I need some education. I need to do it in a way that's going to be real for me, that I can understand, and at a price point that makes sense. Guys, I don't ever, ever do this. I've sold this event for $7,500, okay? But if you're listening to this podcast right now, I'm going to reward all my podcast listeners. I'm going to give this event called the Kahuna Boardroom. It's April 27th through the 29th, coming up here shortly in Phoenix, Arizona. If you will use, if you go to kahunaboardroom.com and you use the promo code Kahuna, K A H U N A, when you check out, I will give this a three day intensive for only $500. Okay, for anybody, so I'm not broadcasting this out on social. It's just for my podcast listeners. So if you will use the code Kahuna, you'll get this event for only $500. Guys, I will tell you at this price point, I lose money, but I'm super excited to bring it to the masses and bring it to people that need it. So again, kahunaboardroom.com is where you go. Register now. When you check out, use the promo code Kahuna and you will get it for 500 bucks. Okay. All right, so as we get into our guest speaker, I'm just going to tell you she's going to blow your socks off. And I really, I enjoyed this podcast so much that I'm going to rebook her a year from now, and it is going to be amazing. So with that said, let me introduce you to our guest, Tweetree. Hey, Tweetree, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Corey. I'm excited to talk with you today. This is going to be a great podcast because you have by far what I believe would be one of the best stories. A, just your overall story, I think is phenomenal. You've shared it with me. I've heard it before. But before we get even to that, though, can you just give us an introduction of who you are and kind of where you are now? And then we're going to go back a little bit and unpack this thing because you've really done some remarkable things. And I think for anybody that's listening right now, I really want you to pay attention because life is hard right? Life is not easy. It's not simple. But I'm telling you, when you put your mind to it, persevere, amazing things happen. And I think you're going to be able to tell a story that's going to impact a lot of people. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much, Corey. So I currently live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a husband and three kids. And how I really got started in real estate was to invest in single family homes at a very early age. And I kind of started learning how to invest really with my coworkers when I was working at Bank of America. And I was there for quite a bit of time as a commercial underwriter and financial analyst. And so I kind of knew the quant of looking at and analyzing a deal and and how to really make a return. And really the first time that I received the rent check from a tenant that just kind of got me hooked on real estate investing. And so I wanted to buy more. And so I just couldn't figure out like a way to how do I get, I can't keep saving up every single paycheck. It just doesn't make sense. So kind of started looking into that a little bit more and figuring out how do I scale up faster? And that's how I kind of got into multifamily. And that was really just a gateway, a taste of how I can get in on the game with, with the rest of you guys. Right. Well, and it's really one thing, it's called OPM, yes. other people's money, right. right? The biggest divide that I see from the single family game versus 
the syndication or apartment game, it truly is different skill set, right? In the single family world, we're taught to, you can go find a deal, you can go probably find a bank or there's all kinds of lenders that will lend you money based on right criteria and you can do a deal. Right. And I quickly found out what you hear is it takes a, one player could win a game, but it takes a a team to win a championship. Was it Michael Jordan that said something like that? I'm uh-huh, not exactly yep. quoting it exactly the way it's supposed enough. to be, right? <laughs> yeah. But I kind of like that idea of that. It is a team sport. And I kind of ran with it. And I have met so many people in the industry are humbled by the different backgrounds that they come from. And you, Dan Hanford, who is a chiropractor, and we actually went to one of his workshops recently, and that's how we met. But you have so many people from different backgrounds and that they're all trying to find the same common goal, which is creating a legacy and building wealth, right? And so I kind of started out really enjoying creating passive income, but primarily also was how do I find a way to save myself on taxes as well? And multifamily presents all of that in one package. And so that's why I kind of was drawn to that. Yep, drawn to it. So then the challenge is, okay, so here I was doing some, I'll call it, for lack of a better word, I'm gonna call it small time, but really I'm doing some single family stuff and you're like, okay, well, how do I accelerate it? Cause that's what you opened up with like, well, I wanted to accelerate that process and I couldn't like, you look at it, you're like, okay, well, if I save this much money, then I can buy another house. You're like, well, gosh, if I do that, it's, it's gonna, gonna take, take forever. forever. Right, it would just take forever. And that's a lot of people's mindset, by the way. So a lot of people, they get there and they're like, well, it's a roadblock. I don't know how to get past it. Right, and they just keep going on and on forever. And I'm kind of, glad that I got hopped onto this bandwagon a lot quicker. And I kind of, in my mind, it's a mindset thing. It's like, I knew there were a lot of players in multifamily starting out. The current environment is really difficult. And it's really difficult to find a deal that makes sense in this current interest rate environment. The sellers haven't really adjusted their expectations of what the pricing are. And so deal after deal, you're looking at this, like, you know, how am I even going to get close to a deal in this environment? So I kind of, in my mindset, it's like, okay, I'm going to give you about two years (laughs) to see if you can make it. And about a month and a half into it, I started networking and partnering up with people and kind of developed and nurtured a relationship with people over time. And they liked me and how my work ethics, my background, and how I just kind of see things that are similar to them in perspective and just started partnering up with them and got into self-storage first. And that was how I got kind of got my start in multifamily. All right. So I want to back up because you said a word that I think I really relate to called adversity. Right. Now, can we go back a little bit to when you really had adversity? Can we talk about that? Yes. And I don't know how deep you want to go because I could go really deep on it. I want to go like people need to understand, A, what freedom looks and feels like, right? Right. And understand the difference, right? But that would be adversity, I think, at the ultimate, I believe. Right. And if you can do that, we're talking about some other stuff that I think people can then like, okay, hold on. We'll figure this out. We'll unpack it a little bit better, I think. Right. So what Corey is alluding to is really how I came to America or how my family immigrated to America. And I was born in Vietnam, in South Vietnam, and this is post-Vietnam War. And my family immigrated to the U.S. after the fall of Saigon. We're called our, quote unquote, the boat people. It started really in the late 70s and it went into as early as the 90s. And so these are people that escaped communist Vietnam through boat into the South China Seas. And their whole objective is freedom, a freedom an opportunity to live in a country where they are respected for their political views, for their religion. And so after the fall of Saigon in 1975, a lot of non-communist family or Catholic families or even immigrants or ethnic groups were forced out of the country because they were opposed to the Communist Party. And so you are economically at a disadvantage. They have blacklisted you and your family. You cannot do business. You cannot thrive in that uh, kind of environment. So my family, my mom was the one that actually orchestrated really an underground tunnel for freedom. And that is to uh, coordinate in a very covert operation to help people escape the country. And so I'm the youngest of nine kids. And so I was the last to leave the country. My oldest brother was 15 or 16 when he started his first journey. And first journey, by the way. Yes, first journey. It is not always smooth. He was in jail a couple of times. And so I think with 11 of us, I think we took about six different trips, but each of us probably were in prison a couple of times. And when you're in prison, they caught you trying to escape. They 
would put you back into labor camps or re-education camps. And sometimes you are under a lot of abuse, sometimes even to the point of death. So my family, primarily orchestrated by my mom, she was a businesswoman who sold tires in the black market. That's how she financed the underground escape for all of these people. And so I remember I was probably five years old. And I remember clearly everything that happened. And so you're five years old, you know that you're escaping. Your mom's just telling you that you're going to go visit your family. You don't know any more than that. And I remember the last time we got caught, that was right at the time before we finally escaped, we got caught. And I believe these were very young soldiers that had rifles in the back of the truck. And I mean, I think they were ready to put us into prison. And somehow my mom is, she is just a fierce woman. She negotiated with them and said, hey, listen, I have some gold bars in the ground of my house. I'm going to give you the gold bars. During those days, gold was like what you bribed, golden jewelry was what you bribed, that's the currency for escape. And so she bribed these young guards that she was going to give them gold bars and they let us. And as soon as she got off that truck, she had already organized, orchestrated another escape. And so that was how I finally remembered, okay, this is the real, like we are actually leaving the country. And so the memory of a five-year-old for me was you're escaping through the rice paddies, the marshes, it's very, very dark. And when you get out, finally get out into the open seas, I mean, shortening this story into a very, very condensed version of it. But ultimately you go to a host family that receives you, they take currency and gold as well and jewelry. When they successfully deliver you to the coast, to the boat, a raggedy fishing boat that's near the end of its life, and that's where you deliver the remaining deposit of what you owe them. And so I remember sailing out into the open seas. And this is a very, very old fishing boat. We've got 50 people shoved. Is it the hull of the boat where it's like we're on the bottom of the boat? And my mom, she was VIP because she's like the boss. She organized that. She was in the middle where we were protected. And then you have the captain and the navigator that's on top, on the top bunk. So you're sailing to the open seas. And the whole point of this is for you to wait for a merchant ship or some kind of international container ship to see you and rescue you. Because there's no other exit strategy. The exit strategy is ride or die. And so my mom, looking back later on, when I realized, she's like, did she realize that we were going to die? Like 80% of the time, all of us were going to die. Like that was the chances of your life or death is either you were going to be dehydrated um, or storm or worse, hear stories of Thai pirates that are just taking over the entire ships and just taking everything and assaulting people and children. So on the second night, I just remember a lot of us were really, really dehydrated. I think we were near the point of like, I don't think we were going to survive. We were just floating and a storm comes. And now that I look at it, I was like, that was typhoon season. I believe that was like May around that time, May yeah. of 1986. I mean, there were about 30 storms that happened during that entire year, but it was a typhoon that came on. And me remembering each time there was an ocean swell, I kind of knew, okay, this is it. Like our boat's going to capsize. We're actually going to drown. And each single one of it, it was just the most scary thing in your life that I don't really talk a lot about it because I don't think anybody can relate to something like this. This is life or death right here. You left your country for freedom, but now you're fighting for your life out in the open seas. So my mom, again, she is a woman of deep faith. And so she led a prayer of the rosary and all of those people, they were probably Buddhist or not a religion of like Christian faith. But they were all chanting for hours and hours on these prayers. And I think I just lost count. You're holding on to this boat because this boat's going to capsize very, very soon. Somehow, I just remember I seen the captain fall into the water. And uh, this was at the point when I realized the look on his face was like, I'm nearing, like, I can't stay afloat. Like, he drowned. He just popped up twice and looked me in the face and he just drowned. And that was it. And so from that point, like, from a very early age, you just kind of know, like, Life and death is, there's just a very, a flick of a finger. You can die like that. Small margin, just like that, right? It is. And so after that storm, and I realized like, I could actually die. Like, But the weirdest thing was that after the storm, you hear about the calm after the storm. There truly was a calm after the storm. And we're talking about nighttime when we're just floating. We have no clue where we're going. We lost the captain. The navigator is clueless without the captain. And so we've got a sea and you are just a very tiny little dot in a sea full of 
sea life. You've got squid, octopus. I mean, everything that you can see in the ocean is just glowing from beneath you. And so you're just kind of in awe of like, you start to wonder about your life. I mean, five years old, you don't really think that. But uh, where I am today, you kind of start to think like there is a bigger meaning in life. There's something greater than that's created all of this, right? And you just start to think like, I have a deep faith in God and how I got here. And so I just start to think like there is a bigger meaning in life. And I appreciate everything that comes my way, every single opportunity that comes my way. And if I can get through something like this, I can handle anything in life. Amen, sister, right? Now, eventually you guys get picked up. You left that part out. We did get picked up. And so I don't know for sure, but when my siblings and I talk about this, I do know, I was like, you know, I need to be historically factual. But I believe there is a maritime law during that time that if you see passengers in the ocean, you have to pick them up and you have to drop them off at a refugee camp. And so my siblings were dropped off in the Philippines and some of them were in Malaysia and I was dropped off in Singapore. And I remember specifically, these were United Nations organized refugee camps. Yeah, And the whole point of that refugee camp was to onboard all of these refugees into and connecting them with their family somewhere. And I remember Paul Chen was our main sponsor, and he was the one that found our family in the United States to make sure that we made that connection, that the families didn't lose each other. So we were probably there for about three months. And so they kind of did everything like giving us health care, everything to get us ready to come to America and making sure that we have that kind of connection. But yes. So my good friend, Tim Mai, I don't know. Do you know Tim? Tim Mai? I have heard of Tim. Yes, I have heard of Tim. So Tim's a riverboat kid too. Him and his brother did. Now he just did it with him and his brother only. Yes. It was crazy. He's like, parents just said, go. Right. Because there are no other options left. I know that my uncle and my aunt stayed in Vietnam because they could not go through this whole process. It is very traumatizing. I mean, I think they estimate about 800,000 people died at sea. There really isn't an accounting for it, right? Yeah, just what they know. So I would say the cost to freedom, it's so great. And I just hope that I rarely talk about this with my friend. I live a very privileged life today, but concept that is very, very hard for most Americans to understand, right? Yeah, but you got to get there to, yes. My whole point is this. So I grew up poor and my wife, her mom immigrated from Philippines, right? right? And she's got a harrowing story. And so- I feel like I'm one step away just through my wife's family watching what they had to do to get here. Right. It's sort of spectacular, right? It really is. People that live here in the U.S. will never truly, that grew up and was born here, you do not know how good it is. Yes, or appreciate the government that you have, right? To be able to say anything you want about your government and not be in trouble, you take it for granted. Yeah, we do take it for granted, right? And so I'm glad that you're giving that perspective. But to go back to the adversity piece and relate that to the real estate piece, right? So here you are, just talked about life or death, right? right? And then when you compare that to, well, it's going to be difficult to find some properties right now. Right. Okay, so what? I think of that and say, if that's my problems, right? right, I'm doing really good right now. Right, 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 yes. Hey everyone, 2023 is the year where new millionaires are made and it's time to take action. A lot of things have changed in multifamily and you need to know what is working now. You must learn how to raise cheap capital correctly. You need the systems to unlock unlimited deal flow and you need a support team to guide you along the way. So guess what? The Kahuna boardroom is now open. We only have space for about 60 people, and I'm telling you, this event is next level. We do it right, we do it well, and I will teach you. I will give you everything that I've learned. Now, I only have space for 60 people, and this is really the course that will get you there. So it's three days of live training, a full home study course, our trusted cash flow calculator, to underwrite your deals. And if you enroll now, I'll include five bonus training sessions building up to the live event. So listen, do not waste a single minute. Go to the Kahuna boardroom. Only 60 people get to attend this event. You want that to be you. So go to kahunaboardroom.com and register today. You will not be disappointed, my friend. And I would say easy to have that negative saying in your head that just kind of stops you from progressing. 
But for me, it's always been, I see it as a challenge. It's like, okay, yes, it is really hard to get a property in this. And especially if you're new into the space, it's going to be even more challenging because you're competing with really seasoned operators and they've capital raised and they can just pick up a property like that. But I cannot see it as a challenge. Like, you know, if I could go through what I went through as a child, then I can apply those same principles to today. Well, okay. And you did it. So like, let's talk about your first deal. So like that was your self-storage deal. Yeah. So I had been mentor with the cash flow champ team, Charles Seaman out in, they have a six member team. They're based out across the United States. And one thing that they've always said is we can teach you all of this stuff, but ultimately you still need to go out there and make relationships and nurture those relationships. And I made the effort to attend as much networking events as I can possibly can early on in the syndication industry. And I met many, many sound and seasoned syndicators that have done this for a couple of years now. And I met Jonathan Way, who's part of Greystone Capital Group. And he started about four years ago as well. He was class W2 and wanted to kind of live the life that he wanted to live. Yeah. And I really like the concept of self-stored because in this environment, it's just a little bit more volatile and shaky. And we don't know that that's going to keep increasing interest rate. Is there going to be a looming recession? And so I really was drawn to the idea that self-storage was an asset class that's a lot more recession resistant, I should say. Right. And so from that point on, Jonathan kind of talked to me about, okay, there's a piece of property out in Arizona. I know you're out in Arizona and we had talked about this at Dana Hanford's event and it is just, I totally get it now. Like I flew out over there a couple of weeks ago and experienced the great outdoors and just rows and rows of self-storage properties and RVs and boat storage. And I get it. And it's like, I understand why this thing is such a huge thing, right? So in a recession, if the interest rate is going to go up, there's going to be a recession. People are going to downsize. They may also downsize and put all of their stuff in storage. Or they may downsize because they're retired. They want to go and travel and experience, go camping, different places around the world. And I really see that's where the value of self-storage is. It's a lower price point and people could totally do that. If there was a recession coming, they would put everything in storage. Even they were to shut down their business, right? They could put all of their stuff in self-storage. And it's still changing, right? So like, it's a great place where REITs and things like that have discovered it, but they're still, I think 80% of them are still mom maybe pops, 70s. Right? Yeah, yes. mom and pop And that's owned, exactly right? how this property, Jonathan found this property was a older couple that was nearing retirement and they had built out this piece of property over time and they were ready to retire and start to live the life that they wanted, right? And so Jonathan really found a really not only great piece of asset, but he found seller financing and that is just golden nowadays, right? And so I would say if you are talking to a mom pop type operator, you have a greater chance for creative financing, especially in this interest rate environment is you're just not going to cash flow. Exactly. Now, in that deal, so you didn't find the deal, your partner found the deal. Yes. And what did you bring to the table? I helped him raise capital. So I came in towards the very tail end of the deal, right? And so when I met Jonathan, he had actually closed on the deal two days prior and he was short on some of his other capital raisers were not able to bring him to the table. So I said, Jonathan, let me look at this deal and see what's going on. And so when I saw it, I was like, you know, this is the kind of deal that is kind of quiet and silent and he's kind of yep. slowly acquiring all these properties, yep. all these self-stores that no one pays attention to. It's like, this is the type of deal that you need to have and set yourself up, especially in this type of environment, right? If multifamily, it's hard to find. This is the exact type of asset you need to get into. Now, in doing that, so you didn't just go out and say, okay, I'm going to raise some money. You're like, hold on. I need to go to, you went and visited the property, right? Yes. I visited the property and I wanted to make sure I had looked at the financials first and I knew within like listening to all the podcasts and I really like Dan Hanford a lot and he does a lot of different asset classes as well. I really admire his opinion and I've done a lot of research just on self-storage alone. So I knew that was a really good asset class to get into, especially during the time period that we are in right now. And Fed's going to be meeting in a couple of weeks. Are they going to increase interest yeah, rate? They're going to meet tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And so that's just something that I knew on paper and all of the research that I've done is that I needed to get the asset class as part of my portfolio. And so that's kind of how I went from there. But yeah, I did actually go into and see the property and met with the facility manager. And what we did was implemented remote management, which is 
The mom pop that operated before was old school, right? You could write them a check sure. and meet the person that yep. lived on site and give them cash. And so in this now day and age, when you are an operator and you're in another state, you want to make sure that things are set up remotely, right? Your whole team, they went and set up and said, here's the vision. Here's what it is, right? It's been mom and pop run. Right. The value is to probably raise rents and then add the modernize the whole facility, right? right? Modernize the online payment system. And we have a facility manager. He actually lives on site as well. And so he is the one that goes out and makes sure that things were taken care of. If there was something broken, he would fix it. If the gate was broken, then we have a contact to come out and do that. We installed cameras. We're about to install more cameras in a couple of months. And so Jonathan comes out there quite frequently to kind of check on as we're transitioning, making sure that things were going according to plan. So you did your due diligence. And then after you felt like good, you're like, okay, yep, this makes sense. I believe in it. I see it. Now I'm going to go reach my sphere of people that I know, right? And had you raised really any significant money at that point ever? No, no. And really, it was primarily for myself. I was really looking for investments for myself. And then I talked to my friends about it. And they're like, oh, Tui, like, I really want to hear about it. And so they talked to a couple more friends. And so they kind of introduced each other to me. And so it really started as me like, okay, if I'm going to invest in anything, I want to kind of see it first. It's my money. And if anything was to happen to it, it's my money, right? And so it really started out as finding an asset class that was right for me from there. And all I did was just talk about it. And people were like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to buy it. And so the next thing I knew, they're like, Tweet, I want you to go buy me an parking lot, <laughs> RV lot. Right. Now, Tweet, how did it feel to first raise some other people's money? Like to have people like, yeah, I want to do that. I never really thought of myself. I'm a very quantitative, analytical person. Right. And so I've always kind of had this mindset, like I underwrite my deals. If I'm going to invest in a deal, I need to understand the underwriting and I need to underwrite it or I need to understand the drivers around it and be comfortable with it. And that's your background, by the way. Yeah, so like that is my doing, background. When you're in banking, right, the part of what you talked about, right. right, an analyst, that's what they live and breathe on, by the way. Yes. It's almost like we use data to drive our decision making. Yeah. Some of those people are the best ones to hire, by the way, if you want to asset manager. Oh, just, yeah. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Because they're not making diddly at the bank. You can pay them a lot more. Right. And you have your own property Secrets. management. That's right? a secret. Right? right? Yeah. yeah. So I never really saw myself as a capital raiser, but I see myself as a quant person that uses data to make decisions. And if they so happen to want to invest with me, then- Respect then, the yes, quant. Right. Respect the quant, right? <laughs> and data doesn't lie, right? Data is presenting itself to you and you've got to be able to see the value in that, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how I see it is as a syndicator, you have to understand the underwriting. You got to understand the numbers. It's all about the numbers. So that's the wonderful, beautiful thing about investing when you're doing it correctly. It is never about how I feel or some people go, oh, I like this way. This Who cares? Right. <laughs> I only care about the, the numbers. numbers. Right. I'll fall in love with the numbers. The numbers, right. And when you do that, you're like, it's a lot harder to screw up, right? Yes. The execution of your plan is sometimes where people fail, right? But most of the time where failure is from a gate, it's usually out of the gate. They didn't understand what they were buying or their numbers were not correct or accurate. Right. Right. And I think probably all your friends know that about you already, that you were going to overanalyze something to an extreme level that most people are not. Right. And the way that I see it when it comes to talking to them about certain deals is everyone, and we have to understand it as syndicators, everyone's risk profile is different. Everyone yes. has their own portfolio risk profile is different. And so when I present a self-storage to investor one, they may not be interested in it because they may have already have other right. asset mix in there that is too conservative or too stabilized. And they wanted a little something that's a little bit more that would bring in a higher return. Right. So that's where I kind of respect. I have to draw that boundary. It's like, here is this investment and I'll give you the facts and you are smart professionals. You make your own decision. Ask me, come back and ask me questions if you'd like. And all of these investors are very, very intelligent people. And so one thing is like, these are smart investments for smart professionals, right? Yeah. There's magic that happens. This is why I love the game, right? Because everybody gets to win on these types of things, right. right? When you really do a good job of trying to find the right property, you marry it with good management, good people, 
right? Right. And then a good business plan. Then when you're out there raising capital, it really is just you're raising and letting people aware of the opportunity. And then they get to make some money. They get to invest alongside you. You get to watch the project. And then that builds confidence and it builds track record. So Twee, when she goes out there and finds the next one, people are like, well, I don't want to just put 100. I want to put 300. Right. Right. Yes, yeah. Because they you start building. I think capital, in my experience, it snowballs, right? Yeah, it starts it off as like a core nucleus of people. And then you start getting outside people. Then you start getting people, the craziest things when you've never met someone ever. And they came from referral from like three other people. Right. Right. Yes. And then they're like, because it was a referral, Dan talks about this a lot, like the no like and trust piece. Right, yeah. It's absolute credibility from that handoff. And they're ready to give you their money after about two conversations in a Zoom meeting, right? Right, like, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm going to wire my $100,000. And you're like, people do that? Like, yeah. they send half a million dollar checks. Like, that crazy. And that's the business. It really is truly fascinating. And I'd like to say, Dan always said, communication is key and relationships are key. And I really, truly believe this industry relationships are so important to nurture that, to continue to build the trust of someone. And, you know, after meeting them a few times and you kind of spend time, you kind of see how they in action, right? And you yeah. kind of respect that. Well, because here's the real truth too. And this is what I think a lot of people that are in syndication right now that have done some deals, maybe a couple years, and I'll raise my hand to this because I deal with it. For the last 10 years, it's been perfect sailing, right? Not a storm that we couldn't overcome. The market gave us everything. Now, when interest rates double, sometimes triple, right? and if we're in any of these, uh, and a lot of us, we're using the same, all these bridge loans. Bridge loans, right. Right. I'll raise my hand because that's I've done them, right? Yeah. I've still got two more that I got to get rid of, right. right? You're like, wait a second. This is not the perfect picture anymore. Now we're getting tight on cash, right? right? Now, it is only because you have to over-communicate on what's going on. They understand this, right? right? They hear the news too. Right. All they really want to know is that you're going to, and this is what I love about the real estate business, is that you have options. People that are in the stock market have no options. Right. Right. And I think one of the things I wrote down as you've been talking, Twee, is your power of networking, right? Yes. I wrote it down like twice, network, 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 because I feel like I've heard you say it now. I look at what you've done and you've said it multiple different ways that you've assembled a team, you've met a lot of people, you've garnered relationships, right? Yes. Do you feel like that is the reason for your success now that you're having? Absolutely. If I was to tell you two and a half months ago, and I'm about to have another, a second property under contract soon. And if I was to ask myself two and a half months ago, there was nowhere in my vision that was going to happen this fast. And so when we had talked to Dan Hanford's event, I had told you like, Corey, this happened so fast. I don't even have my marketing and branding done yet. And so once you're like, tweet, it'll come. I talk to syndicators locally. I go and have lunch with them. And the number one thing they've always said is tweet, this business is about relationship and you've got to nurture them. And also the second thing I would tell you is, Deals are really hard to come by. So you've got to focus on those deals. And so that's exactly the two things that I did. It's only focusing on. And I'll take your word for it. Deals are broker relationships too. Yes, like, relationship. I have multiple students. I have five examples of where I told students, I'm like, first thing you do, identify your market. Then you're going to go into the market. I said, if you can get a referral. So I, usually one of the things I do for my students is we'll give them like what in markets they want. I'll give them referrals of brokers in those markets, right? So in other words, my lender's a Bercadia guy, right? So we always have Bercadia brokers in the market. So we'll make a nice introduction to Bricadia brokers, right? To all my students when they give us their markets. And so five people have done this so far where they just took that little handoff, went to the market, visited the broker, had brought lunch with them, and they got it like five times. They've got deals, right? Like the day of the first meeting that actually ended up penciling and being deals. Like they were in Tucson. They went trying to think of Waleska, Scott Dilly and Waleska. I'm not sure what episode. I'll find it. I'm going to put it in the show notes. Yeah. So you listen to that episode for everybody that's listening right now. But go listen to their story. The first time they go meet a broker, Twee, take them to lunch, and they were really good at just asking him questions and being interested in that broker. And later on that day, he's like, you know what? I just got this deal. He hadn't even signed the contract with (laughs) 
the <laughs> listing agent. But he's like, I'm going to give it to you. Oh, my gosh. Because it was a smaller deal. It was like right. 87, 88 units. Yeah. And it was a smaller deal than he normally lists. Oh, right. So he's like, gotcha. this is just a smaller one. So they partnered with me. We own that deal together. We nice. bought it for like okay. $8 million. It's worth maybe 15 right now. Wow. Okay. That's sweet. So there's hope. When I say, this is what I believe. I believe that the more you'll get to know someone, really know them, right? Where it's not just like, oh gosh, when they know Twee, everything opens up. When they're like, yo, Twee, what's up? Right. How's it going? Yes, right? right. That's a relationship. I've found every good deal that I've ever gotten came from that type of relationship. Absolutely, yes. We're beyond talking about just business. We're talking about golfing, friends, or anything other than real estate. Yes, to add on to that, you know, while I was in Phoenix, I ended up looking at some properties as well. Yes. And so we met with a broker, uh, the friendliest broker in person. And off the bat, we had three deals and some of them were off market. And on some of the deals, he kind of gave us the wink, wink, like the seller's motivated, like, you know, kind of trying to tell us without having to tell us. And so those kind of conversations cannot be interpreted through email or you just got to go in person and just meet them and have a conversation. That's going to be the secret, I believe, in this marketplace, right? So it is tough. Like, I'm not going to dispute that. I think it is tough right now to find deals because there's still a, we're in this weird period, don't you think, Twee? Like, right. Between expectations and reality. They're on the freaking crack pipe too much right now. I feel like sellers got a kid. I think there are opportunities in other asset classes, I should say. Well, there you go, right? Yes. And so where you are right now in Arizona, wink, wink, it's a great outdoors. Just great. For self-storage? Yes. (laughs) I must say, I mean, when I was there, you see retired Canadians that come down for a couple of months and then they stay there and they do all of the... Yeah, outdoorsy things. Listen, and- the last four books that I have bought has been on self-storage. I'm going to tell you right now, Corey is not a self-storage expert, but I am fastly becoming one. By the end of this year, Corey's going to know more about self-storage. And I bet you by the end of the next two or three months, you will probably have one self-storage. I'm starting to understand how to talk the language, right? So yes. like, it's a little bit different language. It's still the same concept on the money side. So the PL side, I understand that but also but there's different multipliers that you can add and tweak that's what i love about the self-storage game is there's you know if you find an existing and build a storefront like not right. everyone is that way but there's retail sales in those units right. there's other ways to monopolize and raise and then technology is a, a big one automating you know, reading, it right yes i'm reading stuff now too they're like understanding trends right like in this time of the market is you can charge more than in this time of the market right instead yeah. of having a flat rate having one that's moving based on market conditions and the seasonality of it a little yeah. bit right so like all those snowbirds when they show up price gonna go up yep on that last self-store deal we have willie when i met him it was so funny because he had this accent i was like willie i don't think Arizona accent. <laughs> you really sound it's a thick Alabama boy accent. And I was like, where did you come from? Like out of nowhere. He had this thick Alabama accent and he was perfect for that job with a something that is self-managed or remote managed. Really only works one day out of the week. He lives on the site and he worked the second shift at Walmart or somewhere else where so he could do this. And he actually also manages for another property as well. And so the interesting thing is the payroll is so much less. The operating expenses are so much less for self-storage than it is for multifamily. So definitely interesting. Yeah. Some people will take the square block, try to put it in a round hole, everything like, come on, I'm forcing it, right? Sometimes you you gotta wake up. It's like, what is the market giving me, Yes. right? And I've been actually changing my thought. I used to be like, I'm a multifamily guy, but then I actually went into a subset of that. I did student housing. Right, I'm like, oh, so now I'm in student housing and I still have some- That is a cash cow. Because I've looked like a couple of student housing deals. That's a cash cow. It's just a different, slightly different, right? (laughs) Slightly different, a little bit more work, a little bit more maintenance, right? That keeps me insulated. So now it's like, okay, I got a mix there. But then the next step, and I believe, I do believe it is self-storage for me, is that's going to be my next asset class. And what I love about it, Twee, you've already hit it a couple times of it, is it's- Smaller point of entry and capital raise. It doesn't take as much money. Right. But you can cash flow as much money. Yes, you can cash flow. So that's what's crazy. Here I'm buying these. My last one was a $40 million deal. Now, I'm not Dan Hanford not doing $120 million right. deals. Okay? Right. I did $40 million deal. And that was a lot for Corey. That's very large. That's a $15 million raise, yeah. right? So I'm like, well, that's a lot of capital raise. Do yes. that two or three times a year. Like, that's 45 mil. Yeah. But the self-storage deals, 
you could be looking at $2 million, $3 million raise and you're good. Like that's going to get you pretty nice size property. Yeah. And so I would say the beauty is everywhere. You just got to train your eye to see that beauty, right? That is the correct way to say it. Awesome. Yes. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed talking to you about your journey. What advice would you give to people that are listening right now? And I'll say some the newer people that are listening right now that you've experienced. What advice would you give them? Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you the Kahuna Boardroom is open and it's live. And I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, anybody that's attended this event, I'm telling you right now that they have been blown away. And the reason for that is, you know how you go to most events and there's a bunch of selling and this, you need that, you need my next course, you need all this other upsell stuff. Like the event that you go to is really not the one that you really need. That's not this. I spend three days teaching you everything that I know. I give you all my forms, all my stuff. And most importantly, if... (laughs) I introduce you, I give you my credibility kit. In other words, we make one for you guys, but because I put myself as your partner, I get to include all my properties in your credibility kit with your branding, your colors. I don't know who else does that, but I'm telling you just for that alone, it is worth the $9.97 just to get in. So if you're looking to change your life in 2023 and really level up, I highly recommend that you go to kahunaboardroom.com and register now. April 27th through the 29th is when the event starts. So when is the Kuna Boardroom? It's April 27th through the 29th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Guys, you will not want to miss the event. The weather's going to be great. It's going to be a wonderful time. And I would love, love to see you there. I would say relationships are key in this business. I try to be as authentic as possible and be as transparent as possible in the way that I communicate to everyone. And I do believe that there are relationships. In day one, you may not see it, but you just never know where you're going to cross paths again. So I always try to keep open communication and nurture those relationships, whether it's through the phone, through lunch, whatever it is. But every single conversation that I have with everyone, whether you're seasoned syndicators or new investors just like me, I remember every single conversation and I learn from them. And each time I walk away, I actually learn by asking a lot of questions too. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I ask people questions, I learn and I remember that. And then I take it to the next level. Yeah. So I would say relationships are key. Yep. You're still in the knowledge train as well. And so am I. So here I've been raising money for a while, but I still went to Dan Dan's event as well because I'm like, listen, I only need to know one or two things. Like there are a couple pieces that I got from him. I was like, I just need to hire some better people, right? I'm like, I'm one or two hires away from creating a better organization. I was like, oh, that was my takeaway, right? Right. Everybody takes away something different, but I've learned that you got to stay engaged in education because we're always learning. Right. And honestly, I feel like this is why I have a podcast to teach as well. Yeah. Right? Staying engaged and being consistent, right? And putting in the hard work. Success just doesn't come easy. It comes up with hard work. Yeah. So- Knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently when you first started your journey? I think I would have just gone straight into my family earlier, much earlier, like 10 years ago. I think there was a very good period of profitability. I would say, though, on the flip side of that is if you're able to come out of this period and have a good deal, then you've learned a lot. Because I came from a banking environment where there was a major financial crisis. And we underwrote deals. I mean, it was the clients were losing hundreds of millions of dollars. And that was a really hard time to underwrite, but that was where I learned the most. And so for me, I don't really see them as roadblocks. I see them as opportunities to rise and challenge yourself and learn. I've learned is if you hold real estate long enough, it'll come back. Yes. Right? <laughs> right. So cash flow is king. If you can cash flow deals and you set investor expectations correctly, a lot of times you make your money when you sell. And so sell right. You actually make it when you buy, truly. Right. But I've learned that cash flow will weather most storms, right? right? So if you set yourself up in a cash flow model, just like right now, it's not the right time to sell. If you're looking to sell properties, you wouldn't want to sell it right now. You'd want to wait maybe a couple of years from right. now. Let interest rates kind of come back down. Let If you're cash flowing and you don't need to sell, you don't have a bridge loan or you're under the gun or interest rate is high, then hold on to it. One thing that the people that have been very successful, and I hear them talking a lot, and I see other newer investors underwriting, where I think I feel it's lacking is no one's really stressing this unless you're trained to listen to it, which is in this environment, you really need to set aside a lot more capital reserves just in the event of something happening. And you just cannot never anticipate that. So I actually underwrite with more reserved than my 
newer investor. Yeah, I think that's a true, true statement because when shit goes bad, you're going to want a nice safety net of cash. Yes. How long, how many months can you go, right? Because something will break, by the way. Like it always does, right? There's always something that goes boom in the night. You name it, right? My only regret tweet is that, so I started really in the multifamily in 2011, is that I, I wish I would have went way harder. I wish I would have pushed myself. I bought my first deal in 2011. It was my first deal. And I could have probably bought three more deals that year, right? Because we crushed on them all, right? So what was holding you back then? Because I might be going through this. It's like, maybe I need to learn something. My limiting belief. My limiting belief that I could raise the capital, right? Right. My first deal, I raised $1.4 million of money. And I was like, I got it the last day of, right? It was like, it was emotionally taxing, right? And so I was like, well, I'm not ready. I'm okay. Let me just hold on. And looking back, I wish I would have just said, go find another deal and go do it again and do it again and do it again and just persevere, right? And be willing to make more phone calls, right? Right. I'm glad you said that because I remember you did tell me, it's like, Tweet, you're going at a much faster pace than you are giving yourself credit for. Yeah. And so that's something that I needed to be reminded of is like, don't limit yourself. And then you look back, Tweet, you'll say the journey was the reward, right? You look right. back, even you can do it now, right? Like, just look about, go back to the boat, look where you're at now. The journey has been the reward, right? right? Your story, none short of amazing, right? And here's the thing that I think that if I could tell anybody is the ink is not dry, right? You have a lot of story left to write and the trick is to write it well. Wow. That's, I got to write this down. The ink is not dry. You've got a story. to. I got to remember this. Right. And so, because we get to command our story and we write it how we see it. The challenge is most of us, it's not that we think, we think too small, right? right? But listen, I just believe that you have a lot of story left. You are way farther along than you would ever give yourself credit for. I know this about you. I picked it up when we first talked. I was like, this girl's going somewhere. Because see, success like that leaves a lots of crumbs, by the way, Twee. And most people that are going to be successful, they have this thing and you can't see it. You can't describe it, but it's this inertia. It's this movement that says, I am not going to bend. I'm not going to break. I'll bend. Yes. I will do whatever it takes, but I am going to thrive and succeed. I saw that in your story. When you start telling me about your story, I was like, oh my God, if you've been through that, you are so much more pliable than you'll know because obstacles are going to come in the way. They come in the way for everybody. Yes. That's a common. That's like par for the course. Right. Like, it's hard to find deals. Right. Okay, well, give me another problem because that's not good enough, right? Right. That's exactly how I see life. (laughs) (laughs) You're telling me what? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so anyways, I didn't mean to get off on me giving you advice. I think you're doing great. So No, I got to write down your... You got But I want to inspire anybody that's listening right now is that I love pins, right? I use a lot of ink analogies because I feel like... That is your story. You get to write it. And you are writing a story right now that's going to be amazing, right? And when I look back 10 years ago, when I first started really my first apartment deal, I would have never known that I don't own all the real estate that I own now. Wow, Corey, we really did some stuff. Man, I look at my wife. I was like, let's pinch ourselves a little bit, right? Because we're like... So it does yield that. Yes. I just need to talk to you every year, Corey. So you're going to remind me. (laughs) We'll talk about where you came and where you're going. So listen, I can't wait to see more success. Let's make a commitment to this though. I'm going to put it in my calendar. I'm going to calendar this up a year from now and I'm going to reach out. We're going to bring you on the podcast again. Okay. Right. And we will update your story and we'll see where that, how's that? That sounds like a perfect plan. I'm penciling it in right now. All right, I'm going to put it on my calendar. I'll send you an invite, right? And we will make it happen. Absolutely. And I'm just going to prophesize right now that wherever you're at right now, I think it's going to be an exponential growth factor. Oh, awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So I can't wait to hear about that story and more. So if anybody's watching right now, Tweet's got a lot of books behind her, okay? Right. <laughs> a lot of if, them. If you're watching on YouTube, like I was like, oh, no, yes. like, I only got like a couple books. I'm like, she's got a whole background of bo- books. This is a library that we have to clean out. We've given away a lot of books. So my husband is a big reader. There's a lot of nonfiction there, but there's also a lot of okay. financial books as well. I thought I saw the Twilight series back there somewhere. Yeah, there but, is you know. the Twilight series. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know. 
You know, my husband, he's an investment banker. So he reads books like History of Interest Rate. Oh, God, it took him probably almost a year to get to that book. But we have a lot of finance books. I listen to a lot of audibles because I'm constantly driving around and I just feel like it's a lot more efficient. Some books that I kind of listen to a couple at a time. It's weird. It's like I'll listen to one, pause, and then listen to another one. It's weird. I don't know if anybody ever does that. But Dan had always talked about Robert, is it Caldini? Influence, Mm -hmm. Psychology of Persuasion. So I'm listening to that. And he's kind of coming from a psychologist standpoint. And so it's a little bit, I really listen to it, then pause, and then kind of think about it a little bit. And I kind of see why Dan does the things that he does. And it makes sense, right? One other book that I was recommended, but I want to start, I'm seeing some reviews on it, it was Lifespan. It's how we age. And and so I kind of want to get into that. But right now I'm on Influence. 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 I like that. And really, that is what networking and raising capital is about, is about influence, right? Yes is influencing others that you understand some things that they may not know. They will look at you for help. Right. Right. No like and trust. Once they, no like know, and trust. they know you. The yeah. dynamics of social, it's like all these likes. And if your friends like something, they're more highly recommend, just like the referral system, right? It's very powerful. Awesome. Well, listen, as we wrap up, how do people find you, Twee? Where do they go to find more about you and your company? So I just started a website called www.passiveinvestorpro.com. And that is the best way to get a hold of me. That talks a lot about my investment firm and what we do to help passive investors make money while they sleep. And ultimately, you can also email me as well. My name, Tweetree at att.net, T-H-U-Y-T-R-I at att.net. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and really giving an amazing story. I was captivated by it. And just sharing your zeal and your love for what you're doing, I can see it on your face. I can hear it in your voice that you are on a journey. You love the adventure of it. And you are going to do very, very, very well. So I cannot wait to come back a year from now and hear more of the story from Tweetree. So thanks again for coming on. Guys, listen, these podcasts happen for a reason. You're listening to this podcast for a reason. You probably needed to hear Tweetree's story of adversity, how she overcame and how she held true to the ideal that there was more in store for her. Life does not want to make you average. There's abundance in life, but you have to go out and seek it. And before you seek it, you have to take this thing, this your two ears, right in between there, there's this brain, there's this thing that you can activate it. And that's your mind, guys. The power of your mind is everything. You have to put it in drive. You've got to get it out of park and you got to put that thing in drive and start activating it and use it, guys. And if you will feed it and feed it daily with positive affirmations, tell yourself that you are on your way, that you are going to get there and act as if you have already won. Guys, if you believe it, you can achieve it and your paradise is possible. Mm -hmm.